Romans 15. Romans 15. So this, this text, verses 30 through 33, and this sermon are a call to prayer. And as we enter into this text, I want to put two banners over our study. Uh, first, I want to put the banner of praying for ministers and missionaries. Praying for ministers and missionaries. Because Paul is asking this church in Rome to pray for him as he carries out the next step of his missionary work. Through prayer, the Roman Christians will be joining with him in his ministry. The Roman church was being called to pray for Paul. And we are being called to pray for the ministers and the missionaries of our own day and to join with them in their work by striving with them in prayer. So the first banner, praying for ministers, praying for missionaries, praying for those who are getting the gospel to the world. Second banner that I want to put over this sermon is the importance of wrestling in prayer. The importance of wrestling in prayer. A couple of weeks ago during our question and answer time on Sunday evening, uh, Holly asked if I could point out some blind spots of our generation of Christians. Are, are there teachings of the Bible that we are neglecting to attend to and to apply in the way that Christians 150 years ago were failing to attend to and apply the teachings of the Bible about race, about the dignity of all human beings? And I mentioned one blind spot during that question and answer time, but I think this is another one. I think this is a blind spot for modern American Christians, that past generations knew what it was to truly wrestle with God in prayer. Uh, Janet was just playing, sweet hour of prayer. You don't know an hour of prayer, typically, if you don't know what wrestling with God in prayer is like. Uh, I'm not sure there's a whole lot of prayer happening in the lives of American Christians today. I fear there's too little prayer happening in the lives of American Christians. I think we've become so self-reliant and forgetful of our need for the Spirit, forgetful of our need for the power of God in our lives. But even when we do pray, I think the occasions of wrestling with God in prayer are all too seldom. And yet true prayer is to be earnest prayer. And the Bible calls us to pray in the way that Jacob wrestled with God. Not letting go of God until we have been blessed. There is to be a holy tenacity to our prayers. And if we long to see the power of God do wondrous things among us, and I hope you do, then here is something that we are to put into practice. And so I think this is a wonderfully helpful text for us. 
So let's see what Paul says. Let's see what God says through Paul, beginning in verse 30. Beginning in verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that God's, by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Now let's just say this up front. If the Apostle Paul felt the need to ask Christians, most of whom he had never met, to pray for him, how much more do we need the prayers of one another? Here is a man used mightily by God. Here is a man who often modeled for us the beauty of holiness. Here is the man who teaches us so well about Christian love. Here is a man who knew what it was to stay strong under intense persecution and in the midst of physical pain. Paul is a hero of the Christian faith, and he was not ashamed to ask these Christians in Rome to pray for him. Even as he knows that this is a church where there is at least some level of dissension and infighting happening. This is a church where many of these Christians are young in the faith and they're giving in to even the light temptations. And nevertheless, he says, I want your prayers. You pray for me. And he doesn't just want their prayers. He pleads for them. He begs for them. He, he makes a passionate and strong appeal for their prayers. And if this was true for Paul, how desirous should we be for the prayers of one another? Shouldn't we regularly feel our need to be prayed for by one another and to be praying for one another? Unless you think this is a fluke, Ephesians 6.19, Paul says, And pray also for me, that my words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And then he writes to the Colossians, and he says, chapter 4, verse 3, At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. And then Paul was writing to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 25. It's short and clear, four words in English. Brothers, pray for us. Pray for us. 2 Thessalonians 3, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. Now, Herman, Paul asked Christians to pray for him. And he was trying to get all the Christians that he interacted with, all the churches that he wrote to. This was his request. Pray, pray, pray. Why? He knew that prayer changes the world. Paul did not have a low view of the power of prayer. 
He knew that God works in response to the prayers of His people. Prayer moves the hands of God, and the hands of God can move the hearts of men. And if we're to see anything of eternal value happen in our lives, in our families, in this church, in this community, it is going to happen because God's people are praying. And so we must pray. Now, notice first the powerful appeal. The powerful appeal. Verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ. That's that's not a low appeal. (laughs) By our Lord Jesus Christ. The first grounds of His appeal is our Savior Himself. If you love the Lord Jesus, if you want to see Jesus honored in this world, If you want to see our Lord's kingdom built, pray for me. This ought to be the motivation underneath our prayer lives. Love for Jesus. And the more you love Jesus, the more you're concerned with His name and His glory and His kingdom and the priorities of Christ, the more you will pray. It is a sober and convicting truth that a Christian who prays little loves Christ little. A Christian who loves his Lord. A Christian who cares about the priorities of Christ and the kingdom of Christ. That Christian will pray regularly and deeply because those things are precious to that Christian. The purposes of Christ are accomplished through prayer. We've said it before. We'll say it a thousand times after this. There are so many things for us to do after we pray, but there is nothing more urgent for us to do until we have prayed. It is the first thing in being obedient to God and longing to see Christ's kingdom come. Prayer is the first and most vital step in seeking the kingdom come, people saved, and Christ being exalted. See, the second ground of Paul's appeal. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. The love of the Spirit. So Paul knows that most of these people in the church in Rome, they've never met him and they don't really know him. But there is a kind of love that he has for them and a kind of love that he knows that they ought to have for him because it's a love that comes from the Holy Spirit. There's a special kind of love that comes from the fact that all Christians everywhere share in the same Holy Spirit and that through him we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. So that you, you open up this magazine and you read about these fellow believers and what they're going through and you don't know these people. They share the same Holy Spirit. They love the same Lord. There's a kind of unity. There's a kind of brotherhood and sisterhood that makes you care about them, that makes you want to pray for them. Our prayer for our missionaries in the world, our prayer for church planters, our prayer for Bible translators, our prayer for ministers being trained in the seminaries. Yes, that ought to be motivated by love for Jesus. That's huge. But it also ought to be motivated by our love for those people. Those servants of Christ. 
Love for Christ should compel us to pray for them. And love for them should compel us to pray for them. Because here we have co-laborers. Here we have brothers and sisters doing hard things for the kingdom. And by our prayers, we can strengthen them. By our prayers, we can best better equip them for their work. So we have the grounds of, of Paul's appeal. Second, I want you to observe the three specific prayer requests that Paul makes here. Because he doesn't just say, pray for me. Here, he lists specific prayer requests. But by the way, that's an important aspect of wrestling with God in prayer. You don't just pray in generalities. God bless Paul in his work. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. Okay? But that's just praying in generalities. And the pattern that we see in Scripture is praying in specifics. Making arguments to God. Reasoning with God. Seeking to persuade God of why we need what we're asking for. And so you get specific. And we have three specific requests here. The first, Paul says, pray for me that what? That he would be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. It's verse 31. That he would be delivered from these unbelievers in Judea. Paul is well aware that his upcoming journey back to Jerusalem brings with it some great dangers. Uh, wherever there is success in gospel ministry, there is always opposition. The enemy hates gospel success. Paul knew that it would be especially as he went home, that is, back towards his own kin, back towards his fellow Jews in Judea, that's where he's going to be hated. That's where his life is going to most be in danger. And he gets it because he once hated Christianity too. He was once a leader in persecuting the Christian church. He knows that there are unbelieving Jews who see him as a false teacher. Who see him as a man leading people away from the true God. Who, who think that he is a man leading people into wickedness and, and evil. And he knows that his life may well be in danger as he goes to Jerusalem to present that love offering. That offering collected from the Gentiles that was being sent to these suffering Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ in that city. He is on a mission of mercy. But this mission of mercy to establish true unity between the Gentile church and the Jewish church, it is also a mission of danger. In fact, Paul is going to speak with the elders of the church in Ephesus on his way back to Jerusalem. And we have a little record of that emotional moment in Acts 20 as Paul gathers with these pastors. And he says this, he says, Now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you I'm sorry that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. So 
Remember, even if Paul somehow makes it through his trip to Jerusalem and he gets out safely, his plan is then to go to Rome and then to get to Spain. So as he was talking with those pastors in Ephesus in Acts 20, he says, I I know I'm never going to see you again in this life. But he also makes clear that he suspects when he gets to Jerusalem, there's going to be trouble. And here as he writes to the Roman Christians, this letter written probably just a little bit before he met with those Ephesian elders, he's expressing the same concern. My life might be in danger. Pray for my safety. Pray that I will be delivered from those who hate me in Judea. This word delivered here, it means rescued. It means literally snatched. Snatched up from trouble. Now, Herman, today we have many faithful brothers and sisters in Christ ministering in places where danger surrounds them. Are we praying for their safety? Are we praying for their deliverance? Are we praying that they will be able to continue proclaiming the gospel where they are, bearing fruit for Christ? I think it's timely. God is using this text to remind us how important this issue is and that our prayers make a difference. We pray in our safe little cozy corner of Rocky Mount and it can help save the life of a Christian somewhere else around the world. Remember how angel, the angel fetched Peter out of prison? And I believe it was Thomas Watson that said, yes, the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. Because the people of God in Jerusalem were praying. Our prayers here have an impact in what our Father does around the world. And there are people you may never meet in this life who are suffering, who are being persecuted, and we can make a difference. So as you hear Paul saying, pray for me, pray for me, you should hear our brothers and sisters whose voices we cannot hear saying to us, pray for me. First request that Paul would be delivered from the people in Judea. Second specific prayer request from Paul that his service for Jerusalem would be acceptable to all the saints. It's verse 31. So remember, he just told us in the passage we studied last week, he is bringing this special offering to Jerusalem. Gentile Christians in places like Macedonia and Achaia had given out of their own impoverished circumstances. They themselves were in poverty. Nevertheless, they took the little they had and they gave it to help their impoverished brothers and sisters in Israel And it's not just because they cared for the poor. It's not just because they wanted to to help these brothers and sisters in Christ. But in this unique circumstance, these Gentiles realized that the gospel had come to them from the Jews in Jerusalem. They, They had been saved from hell. And they had been reconciled to God. And they'd been given eternal life through Jesus Christ because Jews in Jerusalem had helped get the gospel to them. And so now the Gentiles were saying as a token of gratitude, as a way to show honor, as a way to show love, and as a way to care for our brothers and sisters. We're sending this gift to Jerusalem. And Paul knows, Paul knows from experience that having Gentiles as part of Christ's church 
was still a difficult thing for many Jews in Jerusalem to get used to. Uh, Many of the Jews had been taught since they were little babies that Gentiles are dirty dogs, that Gentiles are only worthy of their hatred. And so Paul hopes that, that this gift will go a long way in strengthening the bonds of unity and helping his fellow Jewish Christians look with love on their Gentile brothers and sisters. The very same issue that was creating trouble in the church in Rome, Jewish-Gentile relations, was proving to be an issue throughout the church of Christ. And isn't it wonderful to think that as these Christians in Rome prayed that Paul's gift would be received and that the, the ties between Jewish and Gentile Christians would be strengthened in Jerusalem, God might also have been at work in their hearts in Rome to help them see their fellow Jewish and Gentile Christians with more love? In other words, don't underestimate how prayer is good for us even when we're praying for others. How often have you been praying for somebody else's needs only to realize you need to be praying for the same thing too? Maybe you're somebody, maybe there's a prayer request, right? And, and one of our church members says, I am really struggling to hold my tongue. This situation, I know what I want to say, and I know what I ought to say. And they're not the same. And I need help holding my tongue. And we begin praying for that Christian. And yet, even as we're praying for them, we're feeling our own conviction. And we can't help but say, God, would you help our brother? Would you help our sister? And God, help me too. And there is something about praying for one another and praying for the needs of other Christians around the world that actually God uses to help our own holiness, to help our own heart attitude, to help our own hunger for Christ's likeness. The more intently and earnestly we pray for our brothers and sisters, the more the Spirit is at work in serving us too. So first request, deliver me from those who hate me in Judea. Second request, may my offering be acceptable to the saints in Jerusalem. And what was third, Paul's third prayer request? Verse 32, verse 32, specific request that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Paul wants to get through those first two prayer requests so that he can get to this third prayer request which is that he can get to Rome and enjoy the fellowship of believers in Rome. He wants to come to them with joy. He wants to be refreshed in their company. He wants to be a blessing to them. He believes they will also be a blessing to him. There are wonderful graces that we experience as we spend time with other lovers of Jesus. And Paul wants to spend time with these lovers of Jesus in Rome. And he knows there's obstacles in the way. He knows that there are some some challenges keeping him from them. And he asks that the Roman Christians will help him to get there through their prayers. And as we talked about last time, he did get there. Not as he expected. He was wearing chains when he got there. He ended up in a house arrest type situation. And yet God got Paul to Rome and he ended up working very powerfully through Paul in Rome. 
And I believe probably many of these Roman Christians got to know Paul quite well as he ended up being in Rome a lot longer than he probably expected or anticipated. Okay, now let's focus on this idea in verse 30 of striving together in prayer. What does it mean to to strive or to wrestle in prayer? So first, the Greek word here is soon agonist asthai. It's all one word. I'm just breaking it apart for you. Soon agonist asthai. So the word the first part, the prefix soon means together. What I'm asking you to do, I'm asking you to do it together. But the actual word is the word agonist, from which we get our English word agony or agonize. It has this idea of straining, even painfully so. Sometimes this word is translated as fight. It actually comes from the context of athletic competitions, particularly in the gymnasium, where two people would would go against one another and compete for a prize. It's this idea of wrestling, this idea of striving. Some examples. Moses is an example of someone who wrestled with God. Deuteronomy 9, he speaks to the people of Israel. He says to them, you have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. There's a happy thing to say. (laughs) Israel, as long as I've known you, you've been nothing but rebellious. But then he says this. So I lay prostrate before the Lord for these 40 days and these 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord. And I said, O Lord, do not destroy your people and your heritage whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out and put them to death in the wilderness." For they are your people and your heritage whom you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. Do you hear what Moses is doing there? He's arguing with God. Not in a way. But he's using argumentation. He's reasoning with God. He's saying for this reason. Remember this, God. Remember this. Remember how your name is tied to your people and how if you destroy your people, the other nations will say, well, their God must not have been the true God. He's, re- he's saying, God, remember your promise to Abraham. Remember your- Moses said he did this for 40 days and 40 nights. Hannah wrestled with God. We remember her praying at the tabernacle and how she wept bitterly because she so longed for a child. And we're told that as she continued to pray, her her mouth was moving as she prayed. And and so much so that the the priest, Eli, thought she was drunk. (laughs) But she was contending with God. Oh, God, bless me with a child. Daniel wrestled with God. Uh, Daniel tells us in chapter 9, verse 3, I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And then he gives us his prayer. And I'm going to give you just two verses of it. He said, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. 
Open your eyes, see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. We could look at David in the Psalms. We can look at our Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he wrestles with his Father in prayer. Is there any other way? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then he gets up and he checks on his disciples and they're sleeping and he wakes them up. Strive with me. Pray with me. Wrestle with my God in prayer with me. And then he goes back and he prays again. He comes back and they're asleep. Wake up. Pray with me. Wrestle with me. And he goes back and he prays again. An illustration. Imagine that you have some great need. Some great need. And there is a judge who has the power to grant you what you need. And unlike earthly courts, you don't have to wait till a set day and a set time to bring your case to him. You can go right now. And you're not even limited in time. Like this, this courtroom, it doesn't close down. There's no take-off work time. It's, it's just open, and you can be there as long as you want. And the judge is willing to give you his full attention and to hear your case for as long as you want to talk to him. And you can go, up, you can go before this judge, and you can pour out your heart to him. And you can outline your arguments. And you can reason with him. And you're not bound by any prescribed method. And you don't have to leave the courtroom until you've won the day. You don't have to leave the courtroom until you feel you, you, have, you have been heard. That's a little bit of what wrestling with God is like. And God wants you to do it. God commands you to do it. The Puritan Thomas Fuller said, God wrestled with Jacob with desire to be conquered. God calls you to wrestle with Him with a desire to be conquered. He wants you to conquer Him in prayer. So that when He gives you what you ask, He gets all the glory. That's clearly the one who has given. What does this look like in practice? Here's some practical ways Christians have done this in the past. Um, It's been the practice of Christians in the past to have periods of extraordinary prayer with God about some issue that was near and dear to their hearts. The Puritans speak a lot about the watches of the night, how they would rise in the night and have a quiet time of personal prayer with God about some issue that was burdening their heart. As we get older, some of us find we end up having to get up a time or two during the night anyway. Perhaps there's something weighing heavy on you. Perhaps there's something that's keeping you from sleep. You can take some time in the quiet of the night and just pour out your heart to God and reason with Him, seek to persuade Him. Another practice that was part of Puritan life was that of fasting. In fact, we regularly see in Scripture and throughout Christian history believers strengthening their prayers to God through fasting. It's a way of saying to God, This much, O Lord, am I desirous of what I'm asking? 
In his book, The Christian's Daily Walk, Henry Scudder advises occasionally just taking a day off, taking a day, setting it aside for this, to say this day is going to be devoted to me and God wrestling over this great thing that I long to see God give me. Maybe it's the salvation of a loved one. Maybe it's revival. Maybe it's an awakening in our land. Sometimes we take a day off from work because of a doctor's appointment or because of something around the house that just has to be done. What could be more profitable than taking a day off and going and wrestling with God about things that really matter? And what does wrestling with God look like during your regular times of prayer? We've talked before about Charles Simeon and how he would open up his Bible each morning and he would say to God, I am not going to stop meditating on your word until you bless me. I will not get up from this Bible reading time until you have blessed me. That's how the Puritans also treated prayer. They spoke of of praying to God, bringing your requests before God, and refusing to get up from that place of prayer until you have a real sense in your soul, I have been heard. It's interesting. The Puritans were not fans of any doctrine that claimed that the Holy Spirit was speaking any new truth today. They didn't believe that the Holy Spirit could speak to you and whisper in your ear some new revelation or new truth. But they really did seem to think that in times of prayer, the Holy Spirit could communicate with the soul of a Christian and give you a sense of whether your prayers had been favorably received or not. And they will often talk about in their biographies and in their testimonies, I started praying and I would not stop praying until I had a sense my prayer had been answered. Spurgeon, 19th century, took a different approach. He remembered how Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount had warned about heaping up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. And he saw in his day a kind of abuse where people kept praying and praying, but they were just heaping up empty words, and he didn't want Christians to fall into that. So he encouraged Christians to think ahead of time, before you pray, about what your arguments were, what you wanted to say to God. And he said, then, just come, bring them before God, and you're done. Leave them in his hands. That was his counsel. But both the Puritans and Spurgeon emphasized that you come again and again and again to God until your prayers have been answered. Uh, Spurgeon was preaching once on the parable of the persistent widow. Remember the widow who wouldn't stop pestering the judge until she got what she wanted? And he shared his own testimony about how he came to Christ. And it turns out that Spurgeon had prayed to Jesus to save him many, many times before he really had an assurance that he had been saved. That encouraged me because that happened to me too. I was glad to hear that that happened for Spurgeon. But here was his testimony about how he had kept praying and kept praying, longing to have a sense that he was saved. And he says this, When with deep anxiety of spirit I sought the Savior, I prayed many months before I could get an answer. And I heard my mother say one day, there was never a man in the world she believed so wicked as to say that he had sought God truly and earnestly in prayer and God had not answered him. Many black oaths, she said, have been sworn, but I never heard of any man who was allowed to utter a sentence so derogatory to the love and mercy of God as, I have sought God and he would not save me. So you hear what his mom's saying. His mom saying to, to young boy Spurgeon, there is nothing so vile as to say that somebody is calling on God to save them and God won't save them. She said, that's not how it works. 
If somebody's truly calling on God to save them, God saves them. And Spurgeon said when she told him that, the thought struck me, well, I will say that. Because I know I have sought God, and I feel He has not heard me. He still felt lost. And he said, I resolved that I was going to say it and that she would hear me. For I felt my spirit vexed within me. I have sought God, and I thought, with all my heart, and He has never vouchsafed to hear me. So he thought he was the one. He was the one exception. God saves others, but he had prayed and prayed, and God wouldn't save him. He said, but then it occurred to me, would it not be better to try again one more time before saying it? And that time I sought God as I had never sought Him before. And that moment I found and rejoiced in hope of the glory of God. My supplication had been answered in my own heart to my own soul's comfort. So I don't know if there's anyone in here like that. (laughs) Maybe you've prayed before to be saved and you feel like God's not hearing your prayer. Don't stop praying. Don't stop calling on Christ to save you. Trust His promise. He will answer. Wrestle with God in prayer even about that. He will not let your prayers prove to be in vain. Just a little more Spurgeon. He said, if you're in the same position and are laboring under the same temptation, try again. If your knees have been bent 70 times in vain, remember you have 70 times the fewer to pray in vain. Try again. You are so much nearer the appointed number which you must reach before God will hear you. Do not give up your efforts. In fact, I know you neither will nor can give up if God the Holy Spirit has taught you praying. For that is one of the things that Satan cannot do. He cannot effectually stop a praying tongue. He cannot forever quench the desire of the soul, though he may for a time do it by despondency and despair, yet he cannot do it in the end. I want, before I have done, to take the hand of that young man or that young woman who is tonight seeking the Savior, but as yet without having found him to his heart's joy. And I want to say a kind word to him. I want to say, dear brother, sister, God will hear you. Be of good courage. Wrestle with God. If it's about salvation, wrestle with God about your salvation. Do you have an assurance in your heart? He has heard me. And I am one of His. And maybe it's about something else. Maybe it's about that sin that keeps beating you black and blue and you can't get rid of it. Maybe it's about some big decision that's in your future. Whatever it is, learn what it is to wrestle with God, to reason with Him, to persuade Him, to argue with Him, to bend the knee over and over and over. There's a lot more that could be said on that subject. But let's come to the table uh, knowing that the same Jesus who welcomes us to this table is the same Jesus who has welcomed us into the throne room of God for prayer. It is because of the body and the blood that you can go into that courtroom day or night and plead with the judge and he will listen and he will hear you. So let us praise our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us embrace the salvation that we have in Him. And then let us know what it is to wrestle with our God in prayer. Amen?